on this episode of Hear Tell. We travel west to the apple orchards and potato fields of Washington State, where a digital cloud looms over the lives of farmers like Carl Yates. We drove into a stubbled field of feed corn, mid-harvest. A great green John Deere combine headed towards us, devouring and sucking in great bands of dried yellow corn stalks. When you put something in the cloud, it's going to Quincy. He was not talking about the dark, flat, nimbostratus clouds above us, chasing shadows that lightened and darkened the sky erratically as we drove. He referred to the cloud, singular, capitalized. My name is Andre Gallant, and I'm the host of Here Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA, a narrative nonfiction program, housed in the Grady College of Journalism, at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Kristen Lowe, a 2018 graduate of the MFA program and an Atlanta-based freelance writer specializing in women's histories. She's lived all over the country, but considers her roots firmly planted in the West, which prompted the journey she takes us on in this essay. Kristen is going to read an essay called The Orchard on a Cloud. It's about how fertile land in eastern Washington irrigated with the help of the Grand Coulee Dam, has seen giant data storage centers run by the likes of Microsoft wheedle their way into town. It's also about Kristen's uncle, Carl, who's watched the landscape around his farm change as he prepares to hand it off to the next generation. It's also about Kristen's own search to rediscover a geography that's so essential to her identity. After she reads, we'll talk about writing place as a character, about how the stories we tell about ourselves and the lands we come from are multifaceted by nature. And she gives us a few book recommendations for good reads about the West. Write about a corner of Washington State that um, I think for me isn't a place I often get to read about living in the South, it, um, which is a place where people connect to the natural world in, in really visceral, uh, almost mythological ways, um, which I, which perhaps kind of clouds uh, any knowledge about other geographies. Um, so, but what's your relationship to to the land you write about, the the West, the Pacific Northwest, the Northwest? Um, and why was it important for you to write about? That's kind of our family's origin story. Um, I I grew up moving around a lot, um, and I I found myself trying to think of where do I really come from. You know, who are my people? I, I found myself wanting a connection to, to the land and to a place. And so I think that Eastern Washington really felt that way to me. Um, Moses Lake, Quincy, those are places that I grew up going to because my grandparents lived there. Um, my maternal grandparents, so that's where my, my mom grew up on a farm in Moses Lake and grew up going to visit, staying weeks during the summertime uh, and just the, my grandparents were just loving, wonderful people. And I felt a deep connection to them as well, I think. And so I think it was just a part of figuring out where I came from, like who, and it, it needed to be not just people, but a place. Um, 
And that was that for me. Yeah. Where did you grow up that kind of created this search for you? I was born in Ohio, several different, we moved around several different little cities in Utah um, and then lived in Seattle, Washington. My dad went to the University of Washington um, to get his PhD and lived there. And so um, it was only four years, but for whatever reason, those four years were very formative for me. Uh, and we drove all the time over the Cascade Mountains to see my grandparents. Um, and so just grew really close to them during that time, I think. But yeah, and then I ended up living in Arkansas as well and Wyoming and, and then back to Utah. So. so going to this place in your mind might have already been like a journey. Like this is this like the traveling to this place was probably part of what made it so important to you? Yeah, I, I think so. I Well, just traveling over the Cascade Mountains in general is kind of an epic journey in and of itself. It's really, uh, the Cascade Mountains are gorgeous, but they're, there's also some sort of like violence to them. I mean, they're craggy peaks and uh, we often would make the drive during the winter and weather's horrible and we would inevitably get caught in some sort of blizzard in which we thought we would die and there were whiteouts and you couldn't see the road and so I think maybe that like you're right there there was this part of like this journey that oh we made it to grandma's house we survived this this journey over the Cascade Mountains. So um, when I think of uh, the Columbia River and the Grand Coulee Dam my my mind goes to the songs of Woody Guthrie um, and again those songs like mythologized the power of the American landscape and what it offered uh, a, a young country. What you grew up there. So like, what do those icons mean to you? Well, just, I think in the first place that they still existed like two generations ago, right. That those unsettled landscapes still existed. And then the West kind of always symbolized this um, wild unsettled geography. And so for my grandparents, um, moving from Idaho away from their families, uh, you know, just a couple hundred miles northwest of where they were living was just this, you know, miles and miles of unsettled farmland waiting to be reclaimed. Um, and because of the ingenuity of man harnessing like the power of the Columbia River, they were able to do that and bring farmland to what was desert before. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of what the West symbolized. Um, and what is so fascinating about that area was that um, there was still like adventure to be had and, and land to settle and tame. Well, despite your, your, your family connections to this, this part of the country and the story, um, you still like approach the storytelling, you know, like a, a journalist, like a, like an observer. Um, and it's a story about big tech, right. And the abundance of data and perhaps a, uh, a, a now fading or fragile abundance, former abundance, the land that you're describing. And maybe we haven't stewarded it as well as we should have. Um, and so you have land and tech kind of in conflict with each other in this story in a way. But walking in, um, you know, apart from your, 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 your close memories of this place, 
what form did that conflict take for you? Yeah, I, I think that initially, um, so I'd gone, I flew out to Moses Lake, which is about 30, 40 minutes east of Quincy. Flew out there to do research for my thesis about my potato farming grandparents and the way in which um, the land formed them and provided this uh, family, a very strong family mythology of like of place and being and identity. Um, and, you know, everything from like hard work to faith uh, all stemmed from this land that they farmed. So I went, I went out there and, and was told by an aunt that um, the story of our family lay in potatoes. And I, I was going over to Quincy, which is apple, you know, apple country and potato country still. Uh, but as I was driving over to Quincy that day, I kind of had her voice in the back of my head telling me that the story of our family was potatoes. And I was kind of, I thought, well, it can be more like the ground can hold of this place, the ground in this place can hold more than one story. And so I was kind of determined to figure out what that, what another story could be. And it was really interesting to learn about the Yates family, my aunt and uncle, Carl and Mickey, and how they kind of did break away from that. I mean, even for them, they, they're first generation apple farmers. And so um, I found that really intriguing that one place could hold many stories and uh, it didn't have to just be potatoes, it could be apples. And now, here's Kristen Lowe reading The Orchard on a Cloud. The truck door slammed shut with a hollow bang. My boots scattered gravel in the parking lot of Quincy Washington's Senior Center. I dusted the gray swath of dirt off my right pant leg and looked up at the green and white sign that stands almost on the corner of F Street Southeast and 6th Avenue. Scrolled in green lettering above the image of a tractor, it read, Quincy, established 1907. This sign directs any driver who happens down Quincy's main drag. They need only go straight to reach the chamber, the port district, Pioneer School, Little League, and downtown. The junior high, take a right. Quincy is located in the center of Washington State, landlocked except for the ribbons of canals and ditches that trace down from the Grand Coulee Dam, and yet it boasts a port district where business moves. Business today is different than it used to be. When this land was settled and taken from sagebrush to orchards and cornfields in the early 1900s, business was farming. That's when my uncle Carl Yates's family came, drawn by the promises of longer growing seasons and cheap land fed by the great mouth of the Grand Coulee Dam. Today, the land still draws business. There's still much of it to be had, though the prices are getting steeper and the landscape is slowly morphing. Neat planting rows are giving way to big text data storage centers. In the Quincy Valley, the Grand Coulee Dam feeds the fields with water and the data storage centers with ample, low-cost hydropower electricity. There is no sign pointing the way to the street just below the Yates' orchard, where the cloud lies. The port of Quincy is happy to accommodate big tech, is begging really to have more of them, luring them in with all the promises a low-cost rural location has to offer. State-of-the-art infrastructure, natural gas, a cross-country rail line ranging from Seattle to Chicago, proximity to a major interstate freeway, and an active foreign trade zone. It's no longer just the call of the land, but now the call of an international commerce so interconnected and vast, 
it will send Carl's new brand of Autumn Glory apples, bedded down in wooden crates, to Korea, and will suck back in every single photo, video, and ebook we save to the cloud. Quincy is a valley cross-cut into farmland that sits at just above 1,300 feet elevation, hemmed in by the foothills of the Cascade Mountains to the west and Beasley Hills to the north, the highest rolling dome being Monument Hill. Just below Monument Hill sits my aunt and uncle's home, surrounded by rows upon rows of apple trees. It was the first week of November, just before noon, and we were on our way to the senior center in Carl's old Chevy. Even as he asked after my family and my life in Georgia, his blue eyes scanned the black clouds, the darkened sky. The Chevy rattled and shook. Rain and near-freezing temperatures threatened his 200-acre apple crop, hundreds of bins per hectare of Fuji, Gala, Granny Smith, and Golden Delicious apples. He was worried about the weather, about whether or not the crew of pickers he hired last minute to beat the rain and the freeze would stay until 5 o'clock. After over 45 years of farming, Carl had learned he couldn't control the weather or his worry about the weather. I regarded him with sideways glances as we drove, thinking how little he had changed since I last saw him. He's tall, his once strawberry blonde hair now heavily touched with gray. A dimple set down deep in his chin softened his face as he worked to ease his worry with small talk about the small farming community he was raised in. With nostalgia, he told me about Quincy as it once was. Forty years ago, he proposed to his wife, Mickey, on a beautiful clear night right up on the top of Monument Hill. And with a mix of pride and unease, he spoke of Quincy as it is now. When you put something in the cloud, it's going to Quincy. He was not talking about the dark, flat, nimbostratus clouds above us, chasing shadows that lightened and darkened the sky erratically as we drove. He referred to the cloud, singular, capitalized. The dadded storage centers housed in stark brick and mortar just down the sloping hill from his orchard. Microsoft came to Quincy ten years ago. They came quietly, stranger things like not advertising their name on the outside of the black fence that circles their data storage center or on the white company cars parked just inside. First it was one building, now it's two. Microsoft owns over 100 acres of property just below the Yates' orchard, land they bought for millions from farmers who were accustomed to getting $3.39 for a bushel of corn and $7.75 per bushel for their beans. Carl describes them in his soft-spoken way, but does so in menacing terms as the big bad gorilla. We arrived right on time to Carl's weekly Rotary Club meeting at the Senior Center. A floral banner stretched across the whitewashed brick advertised $5 lunches Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. The day was Thursday, and 30 Rotary Club members filed in and pinned on their name badges. There were familiar Eastern Washington farm family names, Roy Lance and Libert, names I knew from my mom growing up 40 minutes east on Interstate 90 in Moses Lake. We headed to the Silver Buffet stall on wheels and filled our plates with steaming spaghetti noodles and meatballs, French bread, and green salad. We found a seat at a round table close to the front of the room. Carl introduced me to our table mates, among them Scott Libert, who was running for mayor with election day just around the corner. The 5060 District of Central Washington Rotary Club in Quincy began with a word of prayer. We bowed our heads as the order prayed over the nation, the town of Quincy, and the leaders of our country. A collective amen rumbled through the air. I scanned the room, surprised by the age spread of the group tucking into their lunches and making small talk. I didn't expect to see anyone younger than 40. 
But there was a big band college graduate who informed us vaguely about the Youth Interact Prevention Summit. She never told us what was being prevented. Drugs? Sex? A high school foreign exchange student from Europe waved shyly when introduced. There were graying hairs, thinning hairs, blonde and black and brown hairs. There were farmers, lawyers, businessmen, and a petite blonde woman from Microsoft. There was laughter and ribbing as a time-honored tradition unfolded. Every time a member's name or anything remotely affiliated with him or her was mentioned in the daily newspaper, they handed over a dollar bill to the sergeant of arms who circled the tables with a wry smile. Carl came prepared with a nicely padded wad of bills he pulled out of his pocket. His name was mentioned multiple times in the paper. He was running, uncontested as it were, for fire commissioner. When the newspaper and pockets ran dry, the Rotary Club leader announced the speaker. Brian Dano stood and confidently took the microphone from its stand. He was an estate planning attorney in Wrangler blue jeans and a silver-plated belt buckle. Two thick, banded gold rings on his left hand clicked against the microphone as he spoke. He said estate planning is no longer merely about disposing of an estate. Today, the scope is much broader, especially in Quincy, where the average farmer is 58 years old. Families must deal with the expensive costs of in-home or nursing home care. Then there are the funeral arrangements to organize, estate taxes to sort out, and power of attorneys to put in play. As he opened the room for questions, I jotted down a few of my own to ask Carl, where does that leave the Yates family farm when you're dead and gone? Does it get to stay in the care of your family? Our stomachs full and civic duties fulfilled, Carl pointed the Chevy towards downtown, where a white water tower peeped above low-lying brick storefronts. The plaza was quiet and still. We parked just beside a water fountain made by Scott Libert and donated to Quincy on behalf of the Rotary Club. Constructed of small farm equipment parts, water trickled down plow discs and furrow wheels, the sun glinting off dull metal. The bits and pieces took on new meaning as art, heavenly bodies, and a soaring flock of geese. Sunbursts hugged the fountain's central post. A trail of spindly stars traveled skyward in an arc, all of it a celebration of Quincy's agricultural history. Carl and Mickey raised six children in Quincy. They all left at one point to go to school and work in Idaho, Nevada, and Utah. A recession, layoffs, and a stillborn baby turned them back to apple orchards and onion seed. Quincy was a place all of them at one point swore they'd never return to. Three of the six have made their way back. They returned and are raising their families within a quarter mile of the home they grew up in. Bart works for Carl, Tanya's husband, and Scott both work for John Deere. Carl pulled over to the side of the road and parked by the Quincy City Cemetery's new stone border, where their fourth child is buried. In 2013, a few days after Thanksgiving, Todd was found hanging in a Utah city park. Carl and Mickey were down in Utah, visiting for the holiday, and had just seen him the day before. They wished they knew more of the darkness Todd had settled down into. I knew there were torturous what-ifs and whys, still lingering ever fresh in his mind, but Carl didn't mention Todd's name. He mentioned only what he'd done with the support of the Rotary Club. He improved the cemetery, the resting place of his tall, gangly 25-year-old boy. We paused in silence, and I remembered and acknowledged four of the Yates children had come home to stay. Through the truck windows, we gazed at the small, flat expanse of grass speckled with headstones. Carl cleared his throat, and we pulled away from the curb. Carl turned the conversation back to his farm as if we'd never left it. 
Bart wants to be a farmer, and Carl's determined to make that happen, to pass his life's work down to his oldest son, hoping to make his way a little more sure, a little less fraught with the financial setbacks that come from making something out of nothing. Carl and Mickey will incorporate the farm before they retire. Incorporation means the farm will be owned by the corporation, not the family. That means no post-mortem family squabbles. Bart will be an officer, not an owner. The farm will become its own entity, run through the Washington state government. When Carl and Mickey die, there will be no inheritance taxes, and Bart will be a salaried employee. In this way, the family farm, the rows of apple trees, and the great yellow home in its center, shrouded in a corporate name, could live on forever. Carl's father, Everett, came to Quincy when he was 42. Attracted by the long growing season and cheap land, he took the chance and started over. Everett grew onion seed, feed corn, and beans. He always had a small herd of cattle in a fence pasture behind his house, but he never grew apples. Carl is the one and only apple farmer in the family. He started from scratch, going to agricultural classes during the winter when spare time was easier to come by. They invested hundreds of thousands in the saplings and seeds and equipment. When the years are good, they invest it back into the orchard. Mickey said they may be at the point where they finally start making money on the farm, money and a lasting legacy for their children to continue building on. We drove into a stubbled field of feed corn, mid-harvest. A great green John Deere combine headed towards us, devouring and sucking in great bands of dried yellow corn stalks. The combine stopped at the end of the row and dumped the feed corn from its hopper into the back of a red semi-truck's waiting container, the yellow grain pouring furiously like water from a hose. A deafening roar rose through the field. Carl pulled right up to the waiting semi-truck. This was not his land, but it was his new combine. He was letting a friend borrow it to harvest before the weather hit. I watched in awe as the combine made another pass down the 30-acre field. Carl used to work all day to do seven acres with the chase combine. It was two in the afternoon, and only a small patch of unharvested corn remained. New equipment isn't cheap. Carl's new combine cost $350,000, but it is increasingly essential to keep up with technology in order to run a successful farm. That's where the new generation comes in. Bart embraces the farm tech and is introducing Carl to its possibilities, the 25-feet-tall, computer-programmed, propane-powered windmills that cool their orchard 4 to 5 degrees in the summer and warm it when the temperature drops below 36 degrees in the winter. They can control it all from their cell phones. They can harvest a field in the dark with only the light of the moon, the stars, and a GPS to guide them. The 33,000-pound combine practically drives itself. Carl's father never farmed more than 300 acres. Now working with the newest agritech, farmers work over 1,500 acres with ease. That means bigger farms and bigger revenue, but it also means fewer farms and fewer farmers. As we headed back home, Carl drove me past the site of what will be the new Quincy High School. The previous night, Bart told me all about the school bonds that just passed, funding three new gymnasiums, extra classrooms at the elementary school, and a new $65 million high school complete with an AstroTurf football field. It's not just fancy farm equipment and new high schools changing the landscape of this fertile valley. It's tech, big tech. Carl turned down M Street, and I saw the big, bad gorilla for myself. Ten years in, and Microsoft has company. Now there's a whole band of them. We drove slowly down the cloud. The row of data storage centers was just as orderly as Carl's rows of apple trees inside up on the hill. There was Yahoo, now Oath, and their chicken coop building data center designed to circulate hot air out 
and cooler air in. There was into it, and vantage, and sob. A hazardous area sign hung from the perimeter fencing, which rose higher than the height of a man, and ended with three rows of barbed wire jutting outward like snarling teeth. Inside the gates, asphalt parking lot overcame the denuded and dead grass, the parking spaces filled with company cars. It was nearly five o'clock, but we didn't see a soul as we drove slowly down the street. The sky above was now a concentrated deep dark gray, clouds heavy with rain threatened to burst. Hulking backup generators with towering exhaust sacks stood in wait, just in case. Carl's voice fell conspiratorially as he told me that data storage centers can never go down. To the side of each building stood gigantic Caterpillar diesel engines, backup generators, smelly ones that have to be approved for emissions control by the Quincy area. Carl turned to look out his window at the other side of the street at Dell's fenced-in facility. He noted their big lot. There was a lot of room for expansion. Two or three more data storage centers could be kept inside, separate and apart from the farms that plot their rows and acres on either side. At the end of the street, another big black building, again unmarked. Carl doesn't know what or who is inside, but it's dark and ominous and intriguing. We stopped and turned toward the hills. That's my farm right there. They're just all below me here. His blue eyes checked the sky once more. I don't like the way that big black cloud looks coming along. I was hoping we could pick until five o'clock. With all Carl knows about the tech companies and how they operate, he seems to be sending a cryptic message of his own. I see you, all of you. Generations of farmers and big tech companies all came for the same reasons. Reasons powered by water and the ways in which it carves out place and opportunity in an environment still round and ripe with possibility. They all came for the low energy costs provided by the Grand Coulee Dam that pumps water for farmers' fields and generates the cheapest power in the nation, if not the world. Grand Coulee Dam water reclaimed this ground beginning in the 1930s, turning it into fertile farmland. That's why Everett Yates came in the 1950s. That's why Carl stayed and farmed onion seed, hay, and beans, and why he decided to grow an apple orchard. It is only now, with the clouds, that emissions are a worry, that there's more talk of control. The tech companies have changed the landscape here. Carl seems proud of their presence, as if he's in on the secret ambiguities of the cloud. He's also wary. For now, big tech exists in purposely quiet ways that unnerve him. How big will they grow? How will their presence pollute the ground he farms and the community he works so hard to shape? And yet, big tech money flows into improving the elementary school he learned his ABCs in as a child, the same one his grandchildren now bike to every weekday morning. He's caught in the evolution of Quincy's economy, where tech promises big money and opportunity, but also threatens to eat up farmers' fields. Tech fuels his new combine, and it also fuels the cloud. Both are spreading and pushing the limits of what is possible. Carl sees all of this unfolding on the ground that was sacred to the pioneer farmers, now living out their last days in nursing homes their children struggle to pay for. Carl seems determined. There will not be a weakening in the passing of his torch. He will hope for the best, but he won't be caught unaware. Save M Street, Quincy looks today like it did 25 years ago when I came over from Seattle to visit playing with dolls and floating down canals on black inner tubes in the summertime. Tech is here to stay. So are its promises and threats. I wonder if Quincy will still look the same in 25 more years. 
they will break ground on that new multi-million dollar high school with modern gray stone walls and soaring vertical windows. Every Thursday at noon, Carl will park his dusty pickup truck next to an unmarked Microsoft car in the senior center parking lot. And most days, Carl will ramble down Martin Road and get choked up thinking about just how nice the land lays here in Quincy, here in the valley that lies between the hills and the orchard on a cloud. Thank you, Kristen, for for sharing that story with us. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. Before we dig into the craft of this story, um, I want to know how you came to become a writer uh, and and how you define yourself as a writer today. Sure. Um, I think that being a writer um, allows you to be curious about many things. And also kind of gives you, um, maybe there's some clout behind that as well, so that other people are willing to talk to you and open up. Um, And so I've always liked just eavesdropping on conversations, even like when I'm out in public, my husband always makes fun of me because I um, eavesdrop on people. Uh, but just just being curious and and aware of my surroundings and kind of what's going on and and ob- observational, so it kind of kind of combines all of my loves of like of, of knowing more about people, what what makes them tick, and also just of place and and allows you to be curious and put these different ideas and things that um, that come across as you delve deeper uh, into one place to make a, to make a story. Something that has become apparent to me uh, the more I listen to the story and the, and, the, and the more we talk is that, you know, the story is framed as like this kind of, you know, this natural world and, and this kind of uh, invading, you know, new data technology that the, the cloud, as, as you put it, um, uh, and the conflict between the two over time. But there's also this other element of an older technology that, you know, man employs to, to, you know, take control of nature that's inherent to the story of the West, to the story of this part of the world. How do you understand um, that relationship between uh, the people who, you know, quote, settled this era and their relationship to machines and technology and innovation and all of that stuff. Yeah, well, it is interesting because, I mean, Carl, my uncle, he talked a lot about, um, explained to me how you graft a tree and, and the lifespan of an apple tree and how you can kind of play with that, how um, really you can, you can cut off a, a 30-year-old tree at a certain point and leave the trunk and graft in a new uh, a new type of apple into it, and it and it will grow. And, and so I think that there's this manipulation of um, of nature of of an apple tree, and then also uh, trying to take advantage of tech of 
um, of new tractors, of um, sprinkler systems, of acclimating climates, of these these fans that they put up above the apple orchard to get to the apple trees at exactly the right temperature so they don't freeze or get too warm or um, all of those things. And so, so they're manipulating natural elements and then they're also bringing tech in to further, I mean, you're trying to create this perfect climate uh, for, for your apple orchard. And all of that is just fascinating and just the minute details of, of what grows, goes into growing an apple and getting it into our homes and um, it's just pretty fascinating. What to you does that say about um, the future? Like, what are the questions that this interaction asks about where we're going? Yeah, I think that, I mean, tech really at this point, it has to be embraced, but it also has to be harnessed uh, just in the same way you go back to the Grand Coulee Dam, uh, just in the same way the Columbia River, the power of that river was har- harnessed through innovation, through um, the Grand Coulee Dam. And tech continues to grow and our understanding of it. Um, and there's, there's dangers and there's uh, benefits to be had. And so I think it's, it's coming to understand, like, at what point do you know, do we, do we say that tech is harmful? And I, I feel like in the ways in which the farmers are using it, um, with their, for example, with the new combine, I mean, that's, that's powerful um, technology that allows them to harvest more and to make more money that they can then put back into their farm for the following year uh, so that they can grow their farms and have more financial stability. But yeah, I think that that will just be a continuing question that they're going to have to grapple with um, what is harmful and, and what can be beneficial. Hmm. Um, to the human scale of the story, <laughs> the, the smaller human scale of the story. Uh, I mean, at the center is your uncle, Carl, a, a, a farmer. Um, how did you, how do you frame his arc? How do you think about what he's gone through and, um, his prospects uh, on this quest to prepare this place for the next generation? Yeah, well, I think as a child, I mean, I knew that the Yates family was, was always trying to make it as, as farmers, overhearing conversations that my parents had. Um, and it was, it was a struggle. I know, I know that they lived in a rental house for a while, and then they built this big, beautiful home in the middle of their, their apple orchard. And so there are many years of struggling of making something out of nothing. He didn't have, you know, an apple orchard that he inherited. This was, you know, I think it probably started as a passion project for him. Uh, he saw this perfect hillside uh, for an orchard and, and wanted to build one. And, and so there were years of struggle and, the idea of passing it down and not passing it over to a tech company um, to take a hold of, even though technically, I mean, that would be more profitable for him at the end of his life after all of this, this struggle. And they're still trying to make money on the farm. They're still trying to make money on the farm, um, which was fascinating to me 
because on the outside, I mean, they have these new combines, they have a beautiful home, uh, but farming is a bet and a gamble every single year. And the weather, something that's completely out of his control, factors into that. And um, just the risk being taken uh, and the desire to have a stable um, orchard and land and farm to be able to pass down to his son, Bart. And I think, I mean, it sounds like he will get there, but it, it will only have arrived at the very end for him, which um, speaks to dedication and, and love for the land and his family. I just, it's just incredible. Uh, the hard work over generations, uh, you know, decades and generations to be passed down. As you were drafting and, and putting structure to this story and all the steps you take as a writer, um, how did you think of land and how land has its own arc, its own you know, character elements? How did you try to make land come alive? Was that a, was that a, a concern or uh, a, a, a thinking that you brought to your story? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, even though I didn't grow up on a farm, I feel this this deep connection to this place, um, to the canals that I floated down, to the onion fields where I picked seed from to earn a little bit of cash in the summertime with my cousin, um, to the memories I have with my grandparents. And um, I wanted to have the land come alive in, in a way. Um, and then just revisiting that um just a strong sense of nostalgia and and not wanting it to change i didn't want like there's this part of me that it doesn't want the land to change and um and yeah and just the emotions that are tied up with that and so in writing the story and structuring the story um i wanted it to be to be kind of a circular um I guess, cycle to, to be able to feel that. And, and even in the course of that day, as Carl was driving me around the town, we literally drove in a circle from his home to the um, cafe where they had their meeting by the cemetery, by the apple packing plants, um, by his field through the cloud of the tech data storage centers, and then back to his farm. And so it was this circular cycle. Um, and I wanted it to feel that way as well in the story that we were cycling back, um, from beginning to end. There's the scene at the rotary meeting where, uh, we enter in as, uh, as outsiders. Um, I mean, and you have some familiarity with this place. Uh, so, I'm wondering what your sense is that um, the the people of Quincy or a town like Quincy have about how their you know their way of life uh, is changing, you know, in in ways that you know might feel outside of their control. For many of them, I, I got the sense that this Rotary Club meeting allows them. I mean, and it, I think it happens on a weekly basis, allows them to come together. Um, and find ways to continue uh, 
life as they have known it. And I was really surprised actually to see such a wide variety um, demographic of, of ages there, uh, that there were younger people, that there are people from many different professional backgrounds there. And they're all, you know, in a sense, dedicated to Quincy and to this pioneer uh, mentality of, of stewarding the land and keeping this small community on the right track. And um, the Rotary Club meeting gives them a sense of purpose and direction, I think. Uh, it, it gave them space to talk about how, um, you know, land is passing from generation to generation and, and how retiring farmers can be better taken care of, you know, whether that's in a nursing home or in, in a home with their children. Uh, but there certainly are some really pressing concerns of, of not being prepared for what's for the changes coming. Um, and maybe this, these pioneer generations who are now getting older, you know, and some obviously have already passed away, but aren't going to get the care that they need in their older age because farming is hard and, you know, they may not have been able to save up for that in, in the end of their life. It's impossible to talk about place without examining the past and, and thinking about history. And you and I are not from the South, but we live in the South now, you know, and we're not where we need to be, but there are, it seems perhaps finally difficult conversations being had about you know the past and, and its role in in the present um, in regards to to race and slavery, um, but I wonder what are the difficult conversations that are happening or need to happen um, in this part of the world. You know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking about you know the you know the, the colonization of a place that was you know in in most places was you know already the home to indigenous people. Um, and a place that, you know, really had to rest so much from the natural world for survival, right? Like what, yeah, what are the conversations that already are taking place or, or you think should take place in terms of, of the past writing the present? Right. Um, well, I, I do remember my aunt Mickey talking about, <laughs> she called them the damn fish. Um, there's a lot of worry, you know, about the Grand Coulee Dam and the ways in which it continues to infect, affect the environment. Um, and that would be with the salmon migration. And so there is a lot of worry about the damn fish that can't get to where they need to go. Um, but also just with, uh, and that's hard for the farmers because they, they need water, you know, they need that water to reach their farm so that they can irrigate and, and grow things. Um, but they're also stewarding the land in, in their own way. And, and they need to keep that land fertile and uh, the soil fertile to be able to continue to grow from year to year. And uh, there's concern about pollution from these data storage centers and the backup generators that, you know, have to kick on every once in a while uh, because they, the pollutants that are going into the air there. Uh, and my uncle has started, uh, several acres of organic apple orchard. Uh, and, you know, how does that affect uh, those organic apples? 
um, that have to meet certain specifications. Um, and so there, there is a lot of this, again, a, a give and take of knowing um, when to seed and when to, when to push back. And so there is this fine line, especially with, with their relationship with Microsoft and these data storage companies, Yahoo and Intuit and Saab that are there of, you know, how did they benefit the community as well? Um, pouring money into, into the community there, into schools and, and football fields. Uh, but also, you know, and as if in that way, they earn the right to be there, to take a farmer's field and turn it into a data storage plot. Um, yeah, there's just, there is a lot to, to navigate there. You mentioned you think of the story as having a, a circular structure um, starting or ending in the same place that you began. And I, I certainly picked up on that and, 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 and thought the piece had like also just like this inherent element of a journey of traveling through a place. Um, and I guess I just want to know what your process was like for, for, for coming, for structuring your, uh, your essay, for coming to that circular structure. How did you think through it? Did you, did you try other, uh, avenues? I, I actually didn't try any other avenues because I wanted the story to flow in the way that I experienced it because I felt like along the way, each stop that we made as we kind of journeyed through downtown Quincy and, you know, this the water fountain and then the cemetery plot and then past the uh, apple packing and the, the schools, it just, it, it built on itself. It was actually pretty amazing the way in which the story built on itself as we, as we drove together. Um, as I learned more about the place and how it had affected Carl over time um, and, and his family. Um, and just the deep roots that they have there uh, and the identity that they draw from being from Quincy um, and being really like these founding influential members of the community there and, and knowing more about them and, and seeing kind of you know, Carl's influence at the Rotary Club meeting and then his son buried in the cemetery. I mean, they just, their influence is just felt throughout the community there and, and being able to drive around and see that uh, it just really lent itself to that structure. And so um, that's really just the way that it came pouring out when I wrote it. Did you ever wonder if, um, how the piece would be different if this was a, a third person and, and, and Carl was um, was just someone we we saw from an omniscient uh, perspective? Mm, that would have been an interesting way to tell it. Uh, but for some reason, I mean, it is difficult to write yourself into a story in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it's my ego inserting itself in there, but I, I just couldn't cut myself out of it. Um, because I just felt so connected to that land and my wonderful family and the ways in which we all generations later, even if I didn't grow up on a farm, you know, I grew up in big cities and, and small towns and college towns all over the country. And, and yet this is where I'm from. And so I, I couldn't cut myself out. <laughs> 
that's I mean that's related to something else I want to ask you about, which is which is audience, you know. And I think um, drafting something, writing something, it's some of the most difficult questions you have to ask yourself is like who your potential audience is, who your perceived audience is for a piece. Who do you who are you writing this for, right? And what do they need to know, and what do they need to take away from it? Um, and I think that's you know. I, I can imagine it would be even more complicated for you because you're wrestling with this whole, you know, desire to better understand this this place that's so important to you as a person today. And uh, how did you wrestle with those questions? Who were you writing for this, and what did you want them to know? I think first and foremost, it it really was writing for myself to understand as an adult the complexities of being a steward over the land. And this is my uncle Carl doing it in present time. Uh, but what was it like for my grandparents um, beginning out? You know, what did that, did that look like? Um, and we all in a sense have stewardship over land and the earth. And I feel very strongly about that. And um, so I think that the story, the larger picture is really everyone's stewardship over the land. How do we care for the land? How are we connected to it? Um, what are we willing to lose in order to keep the land um, in the condition it should be in to nourish us for generations to come? And, you know, are we willing to give up on the land? by not protecting it in the way that we should. And anyway, I think all of those things might have come into play. I want to ask a question that's uh, it's a little bit selfish because, you know, I'm always looking for new writing inspiration. But, uh, you know, I live in the South and I write about the South because I live in the South. Uh, and it was really refreshing to uh, to read the story and, and think through it because it felt like traveling in a way. Um, and I, I read this book called Spirit Run by Noe Alvarez, who grew up in the Yakima area. And really, uh, it's like a journey story through the West um, Coast. Um, and it was just, you know, as I said, just incredible, refreshing change of scenery. So I want to know who your, you know, you who your inspirations are for writing uh, this part of the world. Who 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 did you look to uh, to help you uh, write about the West? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in grad school, I mean, just so much time gets to be dedicated to reading, uh, good, good writing. Uh, and some of the ones that I did turn to were Judy Blunt, who writes about Montana uh, in really refreshing ways. She wrote a book called Breaking Clean. That it was a national bestseller. Um, and I remember just being very uh, drawn to her writing uh, she kind of combined landscape with this idea of landscape and place uh, and also breaking out of maybe cultural religious ideologies that were holding her back. Um, and uh, that was really refreshing and, and good to read. And then this is an older one, but Timothy Egan, The Good Rain, he writes about, um, is it backpacking? Uh, backpacking uh, through the Pacific Northwest 
And um, anyway, just a lot of wonderful, beautiful imagery because this landscape is so uh, majestic, the Cascade Mountains and the valleys and uh, the arid deserts. It just, you know, is, is fascinating. The geographical and geological history of it is just so, uh, so marked and, and obvious uh, that there's something catastrophic that had happened at some point geologically um, to the area and, and really set it up for as an ideal place for farming and all it needed was water. And um, anyway, so learning more about that landscape from the lens of Timothy Egan was also really great. As you, as you said, this piece is, is just as much about you and kind of discovering or rediscovering a relationship to a part of the world that's so important to your, to your memories and who you are. Um, as much as it is about your uncle Carl and what's happening there today, right? So, uh, on the other side of writing this, uh, what did you learn about yourself? I think I learned that there isn't just one answer of where we come from, uh, but that we're made up of so many different pieces, and that it's complicated and it's not always beautiful <laughs> to look at. Um, that family stories uh, and and family past that it can be complicated, but at the the end of the day, um, this choice that we have to continue um, to like Carl continue to work um, to lay a foundation for a future generation. I think. That's what stories are, is, is we're laying this foundation for a future generation to, to find their place, to find um, who they are and who they belong to and the sense of identity. And, um, and yeah, so, so uncovering these stories, and there, and there were many things in my writing about this and researching for this story that I discovered about my family that were maybe uncomfortable truths about... Um, even my grandparents, who I kind of had put on this pedestal of difficult decisions that people have to make um, about the land and people that they love, uh, but that in the end, we all belong together and, and are better for having chosen to keep trying to stay together. Well, thank you, Kristen, for, for being on the show and sharing your words and your, your wonderful ideas with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This episode features music by Captive Portal, Pictures of the Floating World, and Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about Hear Tell and the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, at the University of Georgia, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. Again, that's bit.ly slash Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Podcast on all platforms. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story. 